You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Stay Tuned in Brief. I'm Preet Bharara. Last week, a panel of the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals reached a significant decision on a Mississippi law that allows lifetime felony disenfranchisement. The court held that the Jim Crow era voting ban violates the Eighth Amendment of the Constitution, which prohibits cruel and unusual punishment. According to the Sentencing Project, nearly one in ten adults in Mississippi is disenfranchised, with a large percentage who are black would-be voters. The voting ban had been challenged in federal court before, even reaching the Supreme Court, but on different grounds. Those plaintiffs, who'd argued against the ban on the basis of the 14th Amendment, lost their case. That's partly why the Fifth Circuit's decision has attracted attention, because of its legal reasoning and potential implications. Could it be a turning point in the fight for an important voting rights issue? Joining me to dig into the decision and the issue is Sean Morales-Doyle, He's the director of the voting rights program at the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU Law School. Sean, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Before we get into this decision and the somewhat novel reasoning of it, could you just for a moment tell listeners what the issue of felony disenfranchisement is, why it exists, what the origins were, and how the country generally views the issue of not allowing people who are convicted of a felony ever to vote again? Sure. So felony disenfranchisement is a policy that exists in some form in 48 states in the country. Every state except for Maine and Vermont uh, disenfranchises people who are convicted of a felony for at least some period of time. Uh, Maine, Vermont, D.C., and Puerto Rico actually allow people to vote even from prison. But many states restore rights upon release from prison Others disenfranchise folks during periods of probation or parole. Uh, and about a dozen states have some form of permanent disenfranchisement. So a small minority of the country uh, that is concentrated in the South permanently disenfranchises at least some category of people with felony convictions. Um, there are a few states that are kind of the worst of the worst, and Mississippi is among them, because as you said, Mississippi disenfranchises about 10% of its adult population and more than 15% of its black adult population. I think that the the issue has, as the court recognized in this case, public opinion has changed on this over time. And really, states have been moving very much, almost uniformly in the direction of reenfranchising people uh, after they've completed their sentences and many, many states after they've completed any term of imprisonment. If I may ask, what's the justice rationale? 
for taking away someone's right to vote after they have served their time in prison and also whatever following term of parole or supervised release. And they are done as far as the criminal justice system goes with paying their so-called debt to society. Keeping them off the voting rolls after that satisfies what principle? Honestly, I don't think it satisfies any principle. (laughs) That was a softball. (laughs) I think, you know, the court in this case actually goes through the various, you know, the four different potential bases for criminal punishment that we have in our legal system and and checks them off each and says, this isn't serving any of these purposes. You asked about the history of this, and so I'll go back to that. This policy really has its roots in ancient, ancient times, going back to, you know, the ancient Greek and Roman times. Um, and it has this, it has its root in, in notions about both criminal justice and democracy that I think we just don't agree with anymore. The idea that when you commit a crime, you're essentially kicked out of society, you're an outlaw. Um, the, the term that used to be used in ancient times was that you're subject to civil death. You just don't get to participate in society anymore. That isn't how I think any of us thinks our criminal justice system should work. We believe that when people have paid their uh, dues, they've done their time, that they should be welcomed back into their communities. And this policy is completely at odds with that idea. It also doesn't comport with a modern sense of how democracy should work. And that's really the basis of the Fifth Circuit's decision here. So these kinds of laws in Mississippi and elsewhere have been challenged again and again and again, as I mentioned in the outset, on equal protection grounds. Mm-hmm. Isn't that, though it keeps failing, isn't that the best tactic for this? Can you explain what that argument is and why it's failed and what the new argument is? Sure. So the reason why this constitutional provision was challenged under equal protection grounds originally is because Mississippi's criminal disenfranchisement law, like the laws of many other states, were originally enacted for racially discriminatory reasons. Essentially, After the Civil War and the ratification of the Reconstruction Amendments, including the 15th Amendment, which gave black men the right to vote, a number of southern states and northern states, including New York, for example, started figuring out ways that they could continue to deny black men the right to vote without saying that's what they were doing. And people have heard of many of these literacy tests, poll taxes, etc. But one of them was criminal disenfranchisement. And that is absolutely the case in Mississippi. The The evidence is as clear as day that that was why it was enacted. In that previous case that you mentioned, Justice Jackson uh, wrote a, a dissent from the denial of cert from the case and said, and quoted the president of the 1890 Mississippi Constitutional Convention, who said, quote, let us tell the truth if it bursts the bottom of the universe. We came here to exclude the Negro. Nothing short of this will answer. This is why they have this policy in Mississippi. And so it does make sense that that would be the primary yeah. basis for challenging it. So why? So, you know, you just sketched out a pretty compelling argument. Yeah. Why does that fail? It fails for, I'd say, two reasons. One is the Supreme Court a while back limited the application of the 14th Amendment to criminal disenfranchisement laws. And we can get into that, but set that aside for a second, because the Supreme Court said, if it's intentionally racially discriminatory, you can still challenge it. And that's definitely the case here. The reason this argument fails is because the Fifth Circuit agreed with some logic that has previously been embraced by other courts that said, essentially, decades later, in the 50s and 60s, when, you know, obviously there was no more racism in the state of Mississippi, um, they reenacted these provisions of their constitution, and that erased the stain of the original intent. And we can't prove that they 
did that reenactment for racially discriminatory reasons. So even though it's the same policy, word for word, um, and re- even though really, as Justice Jackson points out, it's not, it wasn't truly a reenactment. It was an amendment. They tweaked the list of crimes that you, they, they actually added crimes that you could be disenfranchised for, that that wipes away any argument about why this provision was originally written into the Mississippi Constitution. So fast forward to this Mississippi case that brings you on the show. Has it ever been tried before, this Eighth Amendment argument, cruel and unusual punishment? A version of the argument has been tried before. Actually, um, in a case that I worked on in Florida a few years ago, um, we challenged Florida's pay-to-vote requirement, which says that people who um, complete all terms of their sentence, in order to complete all terms of your sentence um, and get your right to vote back in Florida, you have to pay off all of your fines and fees that you owe. Um, And there was a suit that was brought alongside our suit and consolidated with our suit that included an Eighth Amendment challenge, which ultimately didn't prevail um, in that case. But it was a little bit different version of the argument because this wasn't about the same issue. It was about paying fines and fees. The same organization that brought that claim in that case, the Southern Poverty Law Center, brought this case um, in the Fifth Circuit, the, the Mississippi case. By the way, since you're mentioning Florida, my recollection is one of the issues that went on in Florida was not only were you supposed to pay your fines and fees, but in lots of instances, the person who had been in, in prison wasn't told exactly what the fine and fee amount was. Do I have that right? Right. In fact, it's extraordinarily difficult to figure out what fines and fees you owe in Florida. Which is which is crazy, right? So you go to a restaurant and you have a meal. At the end, you're prepared to pay so you can leave the restaurant. And they say, no, you owe money, but we're not going to tell you how much it is. Um, and if you don't pay the exact amount that it is that we're not telling you about, the cops are going to come. Is that yes. a fair, fair analogy? It is a fair analogy. It's it's worse than that because instead of paying for your meal, you're paying for your right to vote. So you right, know, it's much it, worse. It's much worse. It's, we're going to put a price tag on voting, which I think you know, as a nation, we've all decided is wrong. But we're not going to tell you what the price, the price is. <laughs> right. Yeah, there should be like a QR code or something. <laughs> that would be to, great to QR codes. Instead, Florida instead of investing in a QR code, Florida is investing in prosecuting people who vote without realizing that they're ineligible. Just one more question about Florida, since we're on it. There had been a movement in Florida, if I recall correctly, to re-enfranchise many people who had been disenfranchised because of felony convictions. And then Ron DeSantis, do I remember correctly that he did something to undo that? So the the pay-to-vote requirement is actually what was actually the undoing of that. Um, and I, w- I don't want to say undoing because that's going too far. But yes, Amendment 4 was passed in 2018. Florida had been even worse than Mississippi and, and arguably still is right at the, the bottom of the list. It used to disenfranchise every single person convicted of every felony for the rest of their life unless um, they were given clemency. And the people of Florida overwhelmingly, 65% of Florida voters approved Amendment 4 in 2018, which said you get your right to vote back at the end of um, all terms of your sentence. And then the Florida legislature, along with Governor DeSantis, said, well, all terms of your sentence means you have to pay off all of your fines and fees. And by the way, we're not going to tell you what you owe. All right. Let's put Florida aside for a moment again and go back to Mississippi. What are the ways in which the court found that this disenfranchisement uh, was cruel? And then secondly, that it was unusual? Sure. So the Supreme Court's rule about when a form of punishment is cruel and unusual is unlike most other areas of Supreme Court jurisprudence. And it says basically, you know, what is cruel and what is unusual is based on even though it was was written into the Constitution hundreds of years ago, it's based on our current sense of what is an appropriate way of dealing with somebody. Not history and tradition. 
as not it's, is. right. It's sort of uh, the anti Second Amendment approach. And it makes sense, right? What what we consider to be a cruel approach to things may be very different than what folks thought a long time ago. And that's the the reason why the court has struck down, you know, executing people uh, convicted of crimes when they're juvenile, for instance. Uh, so the court does that analysis here in this case in Mississippi and says, you know, over the last 50, 60 years, we've seen a tremendous movement away from permanent disenfranchisement. And Mississippi is in a small minority of states that disenfranchise uh, people permanently uh, for this long list of offenses, uh, for things that have nothing to do with voting or elections. So not only is it in the minority, but the movement has been away from this consistently. Every state that's passed a law recently on rights restoration has moved away from permanent disenfranchisement um, with, you know, maybe the possible exception of that Florida law we discussed. And so the court says, you know, in contemporary society, it's pretty clear we've rejected this idea. Then the court goes on to do its own assessment of whether or not this makes sense from a penological perspective. And that's what we talked about before. The court goes through the four bases for justifying criminal punishment under American law. That includes you know, incapacitation, rehabilitation, deterrence, and retribution. And the court one by one says, none of these make any sense. We're not serving any purpose by keeping people from exercising what we, what the Supreme Court has acknowledged is a fundamental right that undergirds all other rights in this country um, for the rest of their life. It, it just doesn't bear any resemblance or any relation to the crime that they were convicted of at the beginning. Would these cases and these challenges go differently if the Constitution itself had a specifically articulated right to vote? It's a good question. Um, I mean, this case I don't think would have gone differently. Yeah. We'll, we'll see what happens with it if there's an attempt to um, ask for a rehearing or or a cert petition to the Supreme Court. But, um, you know, th- this court, I think, rightly acknowledged that whether the Constitution says in the precise words, you have the right to vote, it obviously does acknowledge a fundamental right to vote. And the court has said over and over again, that right is fundamental. And it's the right that allows for us to have all of our other rights. So I don't think this case certainly wouldn't have gone differently. I don't know that any of these other cases would go differently either. I think that none of those cases is based on the idea that there isn't a right to vote. It's based on the idea that somehow in ratifying the 14th Amendment, the country embraced criminal disenfranchisement. And then this other idea that we talked about before that, you know, even denying someone the right to vote because of intentional race discrimination can somehow go stale if 100 years later a provision is reenacted. Explain to folks as a matter of sort of strategy at this moment, are civil rights lawyers thinking, wow, this worked in the Mississippi case in the Fifth Circuit. We have other laws like this that we want to have struck, uh, struck down. We should be mounting in other jurisdictions and other courts Eighth Amendment, cruel and unusual punishment cases, or do they say to themselves, we have this one good decision in the the Fifth Circuit, we don't want to muck it up, and we'll just avoid doing that? How do civil rights lawyers strategize about this if they do? It's a good question. I think certainly this decision, if it stands, uh, would be a tremendous precedent. It's a great decision that would absolutely open up opportunities to, to make similar challenges in other parts of the country. I'll note that Mississippi really is the worst of the worst in some ways. They're disenfranchising a larger percentage of their population than any other state in the country. And all that the decision says is that permanent disenfranchisement for this long list of offenses is cruel and unusual. Not that 
any type of felony disenfranchisement is cruel and unusual. So I don't want to suggest that this decision, you know, yeah. will lead Doesn't to striking down. Yeah. Right. Um, but separately, what I'll say is this decision is a, is a break, as we've talked about, from what really has been decades of the federal courts being, and state courts for that matter, being very unfriendly to challenges to criminal disenfranchisement laws. The courts have not been the place where we're winning this fight. That's not to say we're not winning this fight. Part of the basis for the, the Fifth Circuit's decision is that, you know, the country has embraced rights restor- voting rights restoration. And that is absolutely true. And, you know, I've been at the Brennan Center now for a little over five years. Since I've been here, states like New York, New Jersey, California, Virginia, Florida, Kentucky, Iowa, um, Louisiana, the list goes on, have all moved in the right direction on this issue and have restored voting rights to people with convictions. Now, there have been some steps backward, too, like the one we discussed in Florida, um, but that was after this monumental leap forward with Amendment 4. So I think when the question is put to the voters, when the question is put to state legislatures, we're making real progress on this issue. When the question has been put to the courts, sadly, um, the courts have have not been particularly friendly to these arguments for reasons that I disagree with. So this Fifth Circuit decision does provide some hope that maybe that won't always be the case, uh, but it is a particular ruling about a particular policy. So as, as you said, it won't solve everything. Uh, and I do think it's incumbent on civil rights lawyers and advocates like us to continue to press this issue um, in all of the places that we can continue to push for legislative action and ballot initiatives and executive action, which has actually been quite successful in recent years. Yeah, look, I mean, the dissent points to the fact that this is, uh, whether you agree or not, that legislatures can solve this problem, you know, overnight. Before I let you go, could you quickly just explain procedurally what happens next with this Fifth Circuit case? Sure. This case, you know, the the Fifth Circuit decided this as a three-judge panel, which is a typical way that courts of appeals decide cases. Um, the state may decide to petition for a rehearing on banc, meaning that all of the judges of the Fifth Circuit would get a chance to weigh in on, or all of the, the active um, non-senior judges would get to weigh in on the decision. They also have the option of petitioning for a writ of certiorari to the Supreme Court and asking the Supreme Court to take it on. Both of those are discretionary. Neither the Fifth Circuit nor the Supreme Court has to take this case. This could be where it ends. Um, but it's certainly possible that either the Fifth Circuit sitting on banc or the Supreme Court might decide to weigh in. And as I always say in these circumstances, stay tuned. Sean Morales-Doyle, thank you for your work on this issue. It's very important. And thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. For more analysis of legal and political issues making the headlines, become a member of the Cafe Insider. Members get access to exclusive content including the weekly podcast I host with former U.S. attorney Joyce Vance. Head to cafe.com slash insider to sign up for a trial. That's cafe.com slash insider. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. You can also now reach me on threads, or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email 
to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tattashore. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The editorial producer is Noah Ozilai. And the Cafe team is Matthew Billy, David Curlander, Jake Kaplan, Nat Wiener, Namata Shah, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this show comes from Fundrise. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting Fundrise.com Fox. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at Fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement.